Genesis chapter 1. Last Sunday, we were blessed to celebrate 42 years as a church. We had a great meeting. I want to thank you all for making it well attended. To my recollection, the highest attended that I've been a part of. And so thank you for that. I've been getting a lot of positive feedback, and I praise God. Now, anniversaries are great because they remind us of what all God has done for us in the past. But we can't live in the past. We must keep moving forward. We must serve presently. And so now with 42 years behind us, we look forward to 43 years. And I'm excited to see what God has in store for us. I truly believe God wants to take this church to a higher plane. Greater heights. Greater blessings. Dare I say a greater facility. Greater parking. Greater numerically. And ultimately, I believe God wants us to have a greater influence in our region. God wants us to reach more people and families. But to do that, we must be about the Father's business. Now, I'm honored that I get to be a part of what is happening at Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. It's exciting. And I can't wait to see how he's going to work it all out. So let's keep filling Jerusalem with our doctrine. It's not just a cute slogan for the year, but this is going to be our way of life. All right, today we're going to return to our series through the book of Genesis. We've been in this series for four weeks, and we've covered day one. (laughs) Amen. There's probably more we could have drawn out, but today we'll move on and consider day two and part of day three of God's creation. So look with me, please, in Genesis 1. Let's read verses 6 through 13. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. The evening and the morning were the second day. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth. The gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind and God saw that it was good. May the Lord open our understanding that we might understand the scriptures this morning. In verses 6 through 8 we get a record of the second day of creation where we find God making a firmament or an expanse to divide the waters from the waters. And God called this firmament heaven. In this heaven is what we call our sky, our atmosphere. This is the area where we get our oxygen. We see clouds forming. We see birds flying. The end of verse 20 speaks of the fowls flying above the earth in the open 
firmament of the heaven. And I haven't brought this up yet, but in our King James Bible, verse 1 says that God created the heaven singular, while the modern versions will tell you that God created the heavens plural. What gives? In 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul mentioned being caught up to the third heaven, which he called paradise in verse 4 of that same chapter. Therefore, the third heaven is where God dwells above everything. Psalm 48, 2, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. It's to the north. Isaiah 14, 13 speaks of Lucifer and says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Isn't it interesting that the north star seems to be fixed in our sky? It is so fixed that it is used as a starting point when navigating by the stars. Could it be God dwells above this fixed place in our sky on the sides of the north? Just food for thought. Point is, there are definitely three heavens. And if God dwells in the third heaven, then common sense tells us there must be two heavens located below the third heaven. I know that's deep. And you're welcome. I put in this kind of study so you don't have to. For what it's worth, it's my current opinion that God's dwelling place has always been. Therefore, I don't think the third heaven was created, but that it always existed because God has always existed. It would seem to me what we are seeing in verses 6 through 8 is the lower heaven, which was created in the beginning and mentioned there in verse 1. It is now being divided into two thereby making the two heavens which exist below the third heaven. I think it may be this. One heaven, the first heaven, is the sky that we see every day. This is our atmosphere. The second heaven is the heaven we see every night. That is the expanse of space. And the third heaven would be above that, unseen to man. Now, I don't mean to confuse any, and if I have, I apologize. But my point in all of this is an attempt to explain how I believe when verse 1 says heaven singular, that it's correct. Now, we see in verse 6 that there were waters which were divided from the waters. And in verse 7, we see that there were waters under the firmament and there were waters above the firmament. So this, to me, starts to get interesting. Certainly, the waters beneath, I think, are the waters which covered the earth. But what are the other waters above the firmament that are found above the expanse of the sky? Some conclude that these waters are nothing more than the clouds which form. I would take no issue with that personally. And so I'm definitely not looking to divide over this. But I studied it, so now you get to enjoy hearing it. If you can picture this, there would have been waters on the earth then an open firmament or sky, then another water layer of some sort above this firmament. And it is this theory that I have become very attracted to in my lifetime. This is a belief that there was a watery canopy surrounding our earth at one time. 
this canopy would have caused the earth to be like a giant greenhouse. And this is the thought that helps us to understand why they have found tropical plant life in Antarctica. It would have helped the earth to have a moderate temperature all over, even to the poles. Some other thoughts in regard to tropical plant life in Antarctica is that perhaps before the great flood, the earth was not on its axis like it is now. The flood would have done a lot of things to this earth. It is also believed by many that this special canopy would have caused the earth to be almost like a hyperbolic chamber where oxygen levels would have been highly elevated. This might help explain why humans before the great flood lived into the hundreds of years with Methuselah living the longest to the ripe old age, 969. This might also help explain the large growth of reptiles which we find in the fossil record. Even today, reptiles, they keep growing their entire lifetime. Mammals stop growing at adulthood. Therefore, if there was heightened oxygen levels upon the earth, reptiles would have lived longer and they would have been able to keep growing to their enormous sizes. The thinking is when God flooded this earth, He would have allowed this special canopy to collapse in some form or fashion. And for this reason, after the flood, we find mankind living less and less. Until now, it's rare for somebody to live over 100. In fact, in America, it's a 0.017% chance to live above 100. This would also be a good reason why we no longer see huge reptiles upon the earth like we once did in the fossil record. For example, we know that pre-flood crocodiles, that species, grew to twice the size of the largest modern-day crocodiles. These are all just theories, which to my knowledge can't be proven, so do with it as you see fit, but it does make a lot of logical sense in my mind. Well, let's move on to day three. That was really of no spiritual value at all to you, was it? (laughs) Amen. But praise the Lord. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth. The gathering together of the waters called he sees. And God saw that it was good. We'll only get that far today. We find in verses 9 and 10 that God gathered the waters together upon the earth, and he called them seas. He caused the dry land to appear. And in this, I want you to understand this morning that we see God's almighty power. That's important as we go through this message. Try gathering liquid together sometime. Take a 10-gallon aquarium, fill it with earthen materials halfway of rock and dirt or whatever, then fill the other up with water, and then try to gather the water and make dry land appear. You can't do it. But our God can. And and I want you to notice the verbiage here. God gathers the waters and allows dry land to appear. You catching that? It was covered with water, soaking wet. God gathers the waters and now what appears is dry. We can't even wring water out of mud and make dry ground. 
God does it, and the next thing, boom, there's dry ground. Now, where I'm going with this is the Bible speaks of how great our God is because He alone has the power to keep the waters within their boundaries. Job 38, 8-11 says, Who shut up the seas with doors when it broke forth, as if it had issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and break up for it my decreed place, and set border, uh, bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, and no further. And here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Psalm 104, verses 5-9. through nine. Who laid the foundation of the earth that it should not be removed forever? Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys under the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. Proverbs 8.29 When he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment when he appointed the foundations of the earth. During my lifetime, there's been all this talk about rising sea levels. There are climate alarmists out there talking about how cities are going to end up in the sea. And to some I say hallelujah. (laughs) We're supposed to now be fearful of using fossil fuels. But the Bible says that God sets the boundary of the sea. He commands how far it can go and cover the earth. So any rising sea levels that may or may not take place, it'll be by His decree and not because I drive a gas hog. My favorite bumper sticker I saw years ago in Mississippi, a guy was driving one of those 10-cylinder trucks and he had a gigantic footprint on the back of his window and it says, I love my carbon footprint. (laughs) Boom. Boom. Now, if New Orleans ends up under the water, then it's their own fault. They built below sea level. Did you catch that? Who's the genius? Who's the city planner? I know. Let's build six feet below sea level. There'll be no problems there until Hurricane Katrina, which, by the way, was George Bush's fault. We all remember that. had nothing to do with the fact that they built below sea level. Brilliant! All right. I'm going to get snarky, can you tell? So back to my point. When we read verses 9 and 10 here in Genesis 1, we are meant to stand in awe of God's mighty power. And... This power that God possesses, it is meant to cause us to fear Him. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as an heap. He layeth up the deep, he layeth up the depth 
and storehouses, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him, for He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Jeremiah 5.22 Fear ye not me, saith the Lord? Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail, though they roar, yet can they not pass over it? In the beginning of creation, we see this awesome power of God. And it is meant to cause mankind to fear the one that can make this happen. That could say to the sea, that's as far as you get to go. And simply by observing nature, walking upon the seashore, we are to understand that God alone has the power to hold back the sea And this should leave any sensible thinking person to fear the Creator God. Now why is this so important? Because the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. It is the fool who will look at creation and say, there is no God. I hope you can see how all of this ties together. Our salvation begins with a healthy fear of God. Both reverently and trembling. We are to conclude that if God can do with the seas as He sees fit, then He can do with you and me as He sees fit. If the seas are held back by the word of His power then I need to know what the Word of God says. And His Word says that we are all sinners who deserve His wrath in a devil's hell because we willingly rebelled against our Creator God who here in Genesis made us perfect. But there's good news. God's Word also says that He robed Himself in flesh for the sufferings of death, to die in the likeness of sinful man. He came to dwell on this earth to save sinners. He he came to dwell upon this earth to live a sinless life, born of a virgin, go to Calvary, offer Himself as our perfect sacrifice, shed His perfect blood, so that every sin we ever committed, every sin we will ever commit, can be washed away forever for whosoever would place their faith and trust in Christ alone. This is the gospel, or the good news as it means. Virgin born, sinless life, died upon the cross, taking God's wrath in our place. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And then He ascended on high to the right hand of the Father where He is exalted forevermore. And to those who have learned to fear God, they've already bowed their knee to Christ and their tongue has already confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
These are the saved. These are the born again. These are the redeemed. These are the new creatures in Christ. And they are eternally secure in their standing with God. But to any here this morning, that you are still stubbornly refusing Christ, be not deceived. God is not mocked. After you die, you too one day will bow your knee. And your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because glory is due to His name. But if you wait until after you die, it will be too late for you. Your fate will already be sealed. Preacher, you're just trying to make me fear. You're absolutely right. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You ought to tremble at the thought of dying without Christ. We need more of this preaching. It was this kind of preaching which led to the great awakening of the 1700s. Sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry God. Preached by Jonathan Edwards on July 8, 1741. It's now regarded as the greatest sermon ever preached on American soil. He was not a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but he preached it that day. It is said that, I don't know if this is an urban legend, but it was said that he wasn't even scheduled to speak that day. That's often how God works. His text was taken from Deuteronomy 32-35, which reads, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. It's a sermon that all of us should take the time to read. But to briefly summarize that sermon, I would say that Jonathan Edwards was convincing people that they deserve the wrath of a good God. But what really intrigues me from his message And I believe this is why God had it pop into my mind as I was preparing this. He spoke of God holding back His wrath because of His mercy. Just as God has gathered together the waters into one place and set a boundary on them, so God in His mercy is currently holding back His wrath which is due to every sinner who willingly rejects Him. Just as God keeps the seas back, He is keeping the unconverted back from hell in hopes that you will repent. There came a time in Noah's day when God removed that boundary. God's wrath was poured out upon this earth and the waters burst forth and the rains descended and this earth was covered over with water and all who had breath, all who were not safely in the ark, died. They were drowned in God's wrath. There's coming a day. God will no longer hold back His wrath from those who reject His only begotten Son. The one who died in your place and endured God's wrath for you that you might be reconciled to God. And one day all who are outside of Christ will experience God's wrath. I want to read to you a few excerpts this morning from that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and then I'll be done. 
The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads. And it is nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. The devils watch them. They are ever by them at their right hand. They stand waiting for them like greedy, hungry lions that see their prey and expect to have it, but are for the present kept back. If God should withdraw His hand by which they are restrained, they would in one moment fly upon their poor souls. The old serpent is gaping for them. Hell opens His mouth wide to receive them. And if God should permit it, they would hastily be swallowed up and lost. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. There is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and pressed hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw His hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. The bow of God's wrath is bent. The arrow made ready on the string. Justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with, his, with your blood. Thus all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a new state and before altogether unexperienced light in life are in the hands of an angry God. End quote. Are you standing in awe of God today? Do you fear God? Are you sheltered safe within the arms of God? Have you come to Christ for salvation? If not, you're still on the outside. The Bible says the sentence of God's wrath is abiding upon you presently. And it is nothing more than God's good mercy which is keeping Him back from executing that sentence which you justly deserve. As Jonathan Edwards began to close his sermon, he stated this, Will you be content to be the children of the devil when so many other children in the land are converted and are become the holy and happy children of the King of Kings? And let everyone that is yet without Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women, middle-aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence, this acceptable year of the Lord, a day of great favors to some will doubtless be a day of remarkable vengeance to others. What is your choice going to be today? I know that some of you here are not saved by your own admission. And you are now hanging over the pit of hell. You are but a breath away from enduring God's wrath. Won't you take advantage of God's mercy? Amen. Amen. 
Run to him while you still can. Call upon him while he is still near. It is his good hand that is holding back the seas of his wrath. Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Listen to me. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put him off any longer. He has made every way possible for you to be saved. And that is through Jesus Christ. He went before us. He made the way of salvation because He loves you. And He doesn't want you to go to hell which was prepared for the devil and his angels. wasn't even prepared for you. So why would God send people there? Because you're either in Christ or you're with your father, the devil. Whose lot will you share in? Let's pray.